Hey everyone, you are going to love this episode with Joe, Joe Newman. As you hear, he and I jumped right into our conversation and I did not get a chance to introduce him. So I want to do that now. Joe has 30 plus years of experience in behavioral therapy with kids in school and home environments. He is truly a visionary when it comes to mutual recognition and respect within our homes and within our schools. We get into the weeds on how we can be seen in our children's eyes while we are seeing them, how we can tackle these specific situations that we had our listeners send in questions on from getting our kids off to school in the morning to talking back to complaining and moaning. We dive into all of this. We talk about play deprivation. We talk about the challenges our kids are facing and how they are less likely to be uh, self-guided and less likely to be self-motivated and how we can tackle those problems of apathy. And we also talk about passive tantrums, which was a fascinating conversation. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Joe Newman. Yeah. No, um, you know, in the years since my book has been published, it's, it has a really wide appeal, um, in terms of the political spectrum. Like, you know, I'll literally, I'll get, um, you know, lesbian, liberal moms from New England, and then I'll get uh, homeschooling mom, uh, Christian homeschooling mom from Montana, right, with six kids. And then, and I get all these crazy diverse groups of people, and I can tell, oh, you know, I'm talking to a Trump voter, or I'm talking to a, you know, a Bernie supporter, or just everything in between. And, um, and I was kind of wondering why that was happening until I read this book by Jonathan Haidt, which talked about the different values that um, that determine people's sort of moral and cultural perspectives. And he looks at these like primarily five moral pillars that people make decisions by. And um, when I read it, I realized that even though I come from a liberal democratic background, uh, my sensibilities, particularly in parenting, hit really solidly on some very conservative values. Um, and I, and that when I, the model of raising lions, this of mutual recognition and how children move through these stages actually shows in a very, um, a good visual way and a, a simple way, how values of hierarchy and authority are actually part of what's necessary to raise children. You can't abandon those. And those are, traditionally conservative values. Now I do that while emphasizing giving respect and autonomy and independent thinking with a lot of empathy. So that hits all the liberal values. So I, all of a sudden I realized this is why I'm getting calls from everywhere because, uh, and it, this does match what Jonathan Haidt says in terms of uh, to come together politically and to accomplish things in the future, we need to have an appreciation of all the different values that make up our culture um, and learn how to have those conversations. So in some ways, I think my, my, um, my book did that inadvertently. I didn't set out to do that, but I realized that's why I had had this broad appeal once I read Jonathan Haidt's work. So. Yeah. Um, what book was it? I think 
the righteous mind. Yeah, that's a good. I I also loved that uh, the coddling of the American mind. Yes. Yeah, that's he wrote uh, that one too, right? Yes, he did, and he's uh, and that's also really solid. So he's working on a book that's going to come out next month um, uh, about anxiety, and I, I don't know what about sort of the rise in anxiety and play mm. deprivation and how that that leads to has really contributed to uh, mental health problems, which kind of goes hand to hand with the book you're working on, right? Yes. Okay. Remind me. So today we're going to, um, I'm going to ask you some rapid fire listener questions that yeah. after our last interview just came flooding in right. <laughs> that people Great. want to know, but I would love for you to give a little taste of, we talked about it a little bit on the last episode, but I promised that you would kind of unpack a tiny bit what the book is that you're working on. Right. So the book I'm working on now is one is that since the first book came out, there's a lot of new kind of circumstances and understandings that have developed that grow out of the Raising Lions method and they become more complex. And And some of them are there's a lot more passive tantrums or kids feigning inability and the fallout of that. Um, and the other are just practical tools to use with, um, you know, two and three year olds as well as 14 and 16 year olds. And I don't think the first book did that as effectively as it could, or just, it just touched those lightly. And then that, you know, so these younger ages and these older ages are being considered more. Now on a broader look, what the book is doing is it's really outlining why we have the mental health problems we do and why, if we're putting so much effort into our parenting, because we're putting a lot of effort, we're getting generally really bad results. And there's a, a rise in anxiety. There's a lot more depression. There's um, a lot more apathy and defiance. And um, it goes into what, what, why those are happening um, and what you can do about them on a practical level in terms of sort of countering this big cultural movement that we're part of in your home so that your kids kind of become uniquely strong and capable. Mm -hmm. Um. I need an advanced copy, but <laughs> okay. <laughs> tell, tell me what you mean by passive tantrums. That I like that word because I feel like that's like kind of my life. Yes, it's everybody's <laughs> life, which is what. All right, so passive tantrum is when um, a child feigns inability to assert power or to avoid difficulty. Okay, so initially I saw passive tantrums in kids who were diagnosed on the autistic spectrum. And what I would see is that, um, you know, a, a, a boy in kindergarten would whine and cry um, or ignore and climb under the desk and pretend not to hear or understand when they didn't want to do certain things. But then I'd see in other moments that child had all those abilities when they were motivated. So out on the play yard, when they wanted to get involved in something, all of a sudden all those skills came to the surface. So I saw this, this big, um, you know, difference between the ability a child had when they were motivated and ability they didn't, they, they seemed to not have when they were motivated not to do the thing. And, um, so I initially tied it in with some of those diagnoses, but what I realized, and um, even one of the questions you sent, one of the rapid fire questions, we might be jumping ahead, but it is like when children are whining and whining and whining and not doing things, 
that's a passive tantrum, right? And passive tantrums, I realize, happen really naturally. It starts because when you're one and a half year, years old and you don't understand and you have no ability to sort of self-regulate or you have less ability, much less ability to self-regulate, crying and whining and uh, throwing yourself on the floor might be natural ways to sort of uh, tell people what you need and, you know, get what you want. Um, certainly, a, you know, a six-month-old crying is the function. It's how that works, right? But when you're three, if you're still crying to get what you want, uh, you that child is leaning back and going, well, this worked in the past, despite the fact they're capable of talking and communicating and doing something else. So when you're going back to pretend like you're unable to do something that you're fully capable of, that's a passive tantrum. Okay. So passive tantrums have run rampant now culturally, primarily because we we have this parenting idea that whenever a child doesn't give us what, what, what we want or doesn't cooperate or uh, that they don't understand and we need to reason with them with a lot of explanation. So we lay heavily on that when and we, we step away from giving consequences that actually frustrate it, the behavior. Um, so uh, so that, that means that you, you sort of breed a culture of children feigning an ability because they just want to get what they want and they want to train you. That's part of the natural process of growing up. And so an effective way to train you is let's see if I can get you to believe that I don't understand that I'm not capable of picking my plate up or understanding, or I can't control myself um, and, and sit quietly after I've, you know, hit someone or thrown something across the room. So I would love to hear this situation kind of played out because I feel like this, obviously you've seen how prevalent it is, but you know, there's this moment between the parent and child where, you know, you know that they know what they want, can ask for it, are probably also capable of just getting it themselves. And then you have all these, um, voices coming in your head from uh the parenting advice of late of like acknowledging their emotion like seeing their side and not you know discounting how they're feeling about the blue spoon over the pink spoon and yada yada, yada. and I feel like then there becomes this tension in this fight where parents I'm sure are sending really mixed confusing messages to their kids and also getting at their wits end. So they're trying to do this, like, I hear you, you really wanted the blue spoon and, oh, it sounds like that made you really mad. And the meanwhile, the kid's just like wailing and throwing the spoon in their face. And then the parents is snappy. In the end, they're going, they're like, it's swinging wildly between these two poles of parenting because we're not reaching that mutual recognition like you yeah. talked about. So I'm wondering in the, in the real time, in the real moment, I love hearing like how you handle those situations. What would be the actions? Cause you're saying probably less words, more acting that you would do in a situation like that. Yeah. Okay. So I'm going to, so I would say the first thing you can do, and it's the simplest thing is nothing. 
your child's whining about the blue spoon instead of the red spoon. Don't respond. Okay. I would, I'm going to say something very radical, which is how you feel about the blue spoon is not important and shouldn't become important. If how you feel about the blue spoon is always important, you're going to have a hard time dealing with all the things in your life. And you're going to become very centered that your happiness has to do with honoring the feeling about a blue spoon. It doesn't. It's the opposite. So if you think that that it's honoring them to, to empathize deeply and allow accommodation around the feeling of the blue spoon, because that's in the dishwasher this, this morning, you're setting them up for misery. You're setting that child up for, for constantly having every slight feeling. Um, and I would argue that those feelings, they don't even know those feelings yet about a blue spoon. They might want the blue spoon. I get it. You want the blue spoon. Reality is you don't have it. Um, they keep whining. Stop talking. Wait. Okay. Um, if they keep whining, you can give them a break. You know, you can say, you know what? I need you to, to sit away from the table for a minute until you're quiet. Need to self-regulate. It's just you're giving them a physical experience to learn from that you need some self-regulation and that uh, that throughout any day, there's all kinds of thousands of little moments where you'd prefer it to be this way than that way. And instead, you have to process that and keep moving and keep your eye on something more important. Um, so I think that. Uh, I think a break uh, is fine. I think uh, not responding sometimes that typically works wonders, like stop talking so much about it. Mm -hmm. um, okay? Don't make that so important. Don't legitimize that. It's mm -hmm. like they're, they're testing out, you know, what's important, what's not important. If I make this important, is it important? This is back to the passive tantrum. Children have, there's a personal reality and there's a, a shared reality. Okay. Children are trying to assert that their feeling about everything must be adjusted to and that they, that reigns supreme. If they're angry, they should be able to hit. If they don't like the blue spoon, you know, if they then you should run to the dishwasher and clean, you know, clean up the one they want and bring it to them. You know, so that personal reality, this assertion of I'm going to see if that's a kind of training mechanism. And if you submit to that constant assertion of this personal, very frail reality that demands that everything around them shift into their direction, they're not going to develop a sense of intimacy or connection. They're not going to come into recognition. There's a hundred things that fall out from that. So part of parenting is asserting this shared reality. No, that's actually not important. It's, it's the color spoon. I, I get that you prefer that one. And when it's available, I'm happy to give it to you. But it's not I've got two other kids here to feed. I'm not washing the other spoon. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it sounds like to me what you're saying and what I feel a lot as a parent is that we often can control or mitigate a consequence and be like this middleman. But there are these times when there are, like to me, if, if they don't learn this now, like later, there will be a natural consequence to acting like that amongst other people. So I feel like sometimes we're like the gatekeeper of consequences. Like, how do you feel about um, 
say for instance, your child is forgetting their insert anything, lunch, spelling, homework, backpack every single day. And you can, by nature of you're the one there getting them ready for school, help them remember and give them their backpack every single day. Or you cannot and let them live out that natural consequence. Like, would you say that's the better choice in the long run because then they learn the consequence and they figure it out themselves? Yeah. Well, I think in, look, in certain instances, I think it's important that you sort of build up. You have to know what your child's able to do at that particular age and what they're not able to do and make steps toward that. So for a lot of parents who, um, for instance, um, are find that they're telling their seven-year-old the same set of five things every morning over and over and over again, right? So I did this with some parents the other day who have twice a week, their son goes to the to soccer and there's three things he has to do before he goes to soccer. And I think it's like, you know, get your shoes on, put on your uniform, fill a water bottle. And they say, get ready for soccer. And then he doesn't do this. And they have to tell, say those three things over and over. And so a, a simple tool, I said, I said, let's, let's bring him out. We brought him out. And I said, I need you. I want, before you go to soccer, I want you to tell me the, the three things your, your mom always tells, uh, tells you to do. And we sat and waited and, until he came up with those three things. And, it, it, you know, I said, oh, we can't do anything else until this happens. There's no playing or I'll wait until you wait. So he, he was actually fairly cheerful and wrote down those three things. And I said, I, I, I need you to read them to me so I know you understand them. He says, yes. And I said, now put them, uh, tape them to your wall. And, um, and uh, he did. And I said, so, uh, you know, uh, I need you to check this on your own. And when you don't, I might ask you to take a break. I might say, check your list. And if you if you check it and you're not finished, I might say, take a break. And then that means you need to go back and figure that out. So what I'm doing is just stepping out of the role of reminding him and creating this simple list that he goes back to. You do that for a week and he's not going to go back to the list anymore. You have to, he because he doesn't want the break. That's a little bit of a slowdown. It's not a big deal, but he sits for a minute. This is a kid who, knew, who, who knows how to take breaks. He'd been doing this for a couple of years, but we wanted the parents to stop reminding them. What do you do? Let him start doing that. You know, in the beginning, don't tell him the three things. Say, check your list. Five minutes later, he's running around. Two of those things aren't done. And you say, hey, take a break for a minute. Why? We can talk about it after. He sits down. Why? After the break, he says, why? Check your list. Okay. Now, <clears throat> he, you know, you do that for a week and then you, you look at him and you go, what am I going to say? Check your list. And he runs in and checks his list. Soon it becomes his habit of mind. He's holding it. That's the shift. Okay. So in terms of, well, the other, interest, I don't know if you have a question about that, but you said a lot of interesting things. Yeah. No, I was just going to say, I think that habit of mind training, not being like the engine of the train is, I would say top three problems I hear from parents. So I think that, um, you know, like rinse your plate, rinse your plate, rinse your plate. And, and you know, they're fully capable of remembering of rinsing to rinse their plate. So I, right. I love this, um, you know, like teaching our kids to take ownership over their lives. And I, I love that. Um, so, so say like the rinse your plate, obviously that's not a checklist. It's, it's one thing to remember. So it's more, 
Yeah, so if they get up, sit back down, sit back down. But you're not telling them what to do to try to get them to remember. Is that kind of the? Yeah, you've told them to 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 rinse their plate, you know, a thousand times by now, right? So don't say it again. Like, mm-hmm. just make a commitment never to say that again. And instead, <laughs> and that only works if you have if if you have a some some way of effectively creating a small little stoplight which creates a minor frustration. Mm-hmm. That stoplight is a break. That's all a break is for. It's this universal tool. It takes you, it, it, people initially, they have to go over a hump of getting children into the habit of taking them and going through the tantrums that occur, incur when you first do it or occur. And so, um, but, you know, your kid gets up from the thing and, um, you know, and you say, Brian, um, take a break for a second. What? Why? I was going to go watch TV. We can talk about it after. Um, he sits down. And then afterwards, he said, do you know why I gave you a break? Oh, it's the plate. And he takes the plate. Okay. Soon he starts to get up and he has this visceral feeling of like, wait a minute, there's something I'm forgetting. I don't want a break. And he does, and he takes the break. I mean, I've seen parents do this with two and a half year olds. I, I, I taught a mom how to do breaks with her five-year-old who is doing an enormous amount of passive tantrums. And I come back two weeks later and in the playroom, the kids are playing, we're watching. The two and a half-year-old has a toy out. She leaves it on the floor and she goes to pull out another one. And mom says, Rose, I need you to take a break. And she looks at her mom and she goes over to put away the other toy. And mom says, you can do that after. And then she just sit for a minute. She sits for a minute. She says, okay, break is done. And Rose goes over, puts away the first toy, and then pulls out the second toy. Mm-hmm. I was like, wow, that mom has really got a you know a bead on her child's ability. And in this very non-judgmental way, is creating a habit of mind in her two and a half year old. And I was like, that's a great expectation to have. And and Rose was very happily doing that and knew that already that this pattern was in place, that you need to take care of this before you do that. That's a healthy habit of mind. Yeah. Yeah. I love that tool. I think, and it's one of those things a little bit like where the setup, you might be like, oh, that's a lot of setup. But in the end, the, it it saves you a lot. Like my kids caught on to breaks very easily. And now it's just an easy implementation that also isn't a power struggle at all, which is nice. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, breaks at the end of the day, are really just for one thing. You just want your kids to take you seriously. Because until they take you seriously, they're not going to develop mutual recognition. Mm-hmm. And mutual recognition means they have a recognition of your need and they have a recognition of their own need and they hold those in tension. You know? um, so I'm assuming that the parents listening are doing a good job of recognizing their children. Uh, it's very rare now that parents listen, particularly listening to a parenting podcast, don't do that stage. And there's lots of help doing that. So I'm I'm saying we need to do this other part that's in balance. Um, but mutual recognition, until they take you seriously, until they take your needs and wants seriously, they're not going to develop all the emotional and psychological skills they need to succeed and become resilient. Okay. And they're not going to feel secure and connected to you because for that to happen, they have to come into recognition of you. 
That means they take your needs seriously, who you are seriously. They can anticipate certain things like you anticipate certain things with them. And that has to grow in terms of how much of that you expect, you know, every day from the time they're born until the time they're 18, mm-hmm. you know, maybe 25. That has to grow and it changes every day. So um, so before we move on to another question, you noted something that you wanted to go back to, and I don't want to skip it if we didn't get over it already. Well, I think um, you said we, we can create accommodations and you have those moments where, um, you know, do you, do you remind him to take his lunch? Do you remind him to take his lunch? Do you remind him to take his lunch? I think, um, I, and I think that our job is to create causes and effects. The reality is it's not, and it's not all natural consequences. The reality is there's nothing natural about the fact that, um, in the home, you're, you hold all the responsibility. You are the ones, you're not going to, your, your children are not going to say, hey, I want to take more responsibility today. I want to take more responsibility tomorrow. And the next day after that, I want to take even more responsibility. You have to do that. Okay? You are the administer of cause and effect. But, you, but you're the one who administers it. You have to decide what that looks like. And, and if you do it well, then they're ready for the cause and effect of the world. And they become resilient people who can or feel happy and connected. If you don't, if you think just natural consequence happens while well, you pay for everything and you don't have any of your needs met, I don't think that's true. So that's what I thought was interesting about what you said about that, that moment of balance where you could make an accommodation or you could seize the opportunity to create an effect or a consequence and do it in a loving, respectful way that helps them learn and grow so they're ready for the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I I think that practicing that as a parent, especially, you know, how we're interlaced with this respectful parenting talk. And I think that there's been a lot more um, recognition and conversation about how gentle parenting, respectful parenting, attachment parenting took it too far. Yeah. And we've always talked about that on the podcast, that this is not about this little king baby cherub that gets whatever they want. It is like it does have to be mutual. Um, But sometimes it does really feel hard to find that line where you are respecting your kids' emotions and wants and needs and trying to really see how you can help them. and supporting a natural consequence and happening to them that is like it is it is a really hard line especially you look at people you know I was raised by a single mom and I know I have like a a trigger like a childhood wound of someone I was left to fend for myself and you know figure everything out I mean no help at all and so all natural consequences, and I, I do think it made me more independent, but there was also like this, you know, you feel like scared or vulnerable or, you know, like we have these triggers in our mind of like, I'm not a good parent if my kid forgets their lunch kind of a feeling or, you right, know, right. like, and so it's hard to like have that 
in your psyche and then like watch them walk out the door and be like, I hope they figure it out when they get there. <laughs> you know, I think you should just reframe that lunch thing because I would say you're not a good parent if you forget your child's lunch. Mm -hmm. But I don't think that's the case. Mm -hmm. If you're remembering it every day, you're a good parent. If mm -hmm. at seven, they're still not following that pattern, it's like they might go to school and have goldfish for lunch. <laughs> I don't know. It's not the end of the world. Don't it's like, I, and, I, and, they, and, you know, they come home. I, I forgot my lunch. It's a drag. I know. Did you have something? Yeah, she gave me old goldfish. And someone was always shared a little bit, right, what they had at school. I know, but I didn't like it. It's like, ah, it's a drag. But, you know, so what can you do to help solve that problem? You know, um, why don't we, why don't we write down the things and then you can check them on the way and I'll, and I'll remind you to check your list and then you'll, you'll see if, you know, you'll look at it at the, on the list. Yeah. That's a much better experience. It's like you, you remember it, but you need that. It's mm -hmm. like, and you also have to endure that difficulty. It's not a big difficulty, you know, there are families in Africa who are living on one meal a day. Um, and some of those kids grow up great because uh, parents still love them and they're still doing their best. I've showed my kids too many of those videos. <laughs> Wait, and I'm like, listen, <laughs> this is real life, okay? Yeah, um, it's, it's like just loving. You want to lovingly, lovingly, lovingly coach them through difficulty, but you don't want to move the difficulty. Right, right. Part of your job is to is to administer it. Yes. Lovingly with a sense of autonomy. So they have that relationship with it, not a neglectful relationship, not a, a disrespectful relationship, not a relationship where they felt no autonomy or power, but quite the opposite paired with the difficulty. That sounds like a future entrepreneur. Right. Yeah. And I, for me, the reframe is, am I going to be disappointed in myself when I raise a kid who is completely incapable of doing anything on their own? Yeah, more so than <laughs> right, right. In these moments. And okay, so I think, and this goes to some of our, our questions. So the lunch, for example, if they just forget their lunch, then they deal with it at school. And the natural consequence is not affecting you as a parent because they're at school. But there are a lot of, of moments when, uh, you know, so we have... What can I do when my child screams and cries for a toy every time I go to the store? Um, so things like this where you're in the situation with them and the, the whole towing the line or the taking the break is, is harder on you. So is the hope that when we hold this hard line, it will mitigate the behavior in the future? Is that kind of the the dream for us? <laughs> yeah. Well, I think um, let's just start with, you know, you're trying to, people are trying to figure out what's the natural consequence when they're having a tantrum for a toy in the store, when I just wanted to go get milk and eggs, you know? Um, and the truth is there really isn't one. It's not like you're going to, you know, the natural consequence, what would the natural consequence be, be in the wild, you know? that uh, they don't eat dinner or they don't, you know, or that you have to leave without the food and nobody eats, you know, what kind of bizarre natural consequence. It's not, you have to admit it, you create cause and effect. 
Brakes are a universal tool to administer that. That, you know, I have parents who give brakes in the store. Take a break. You can sit right there, right in the middle of the aisle. It's fine on the side of the aisle. Maybe. But, that's, you know, that's, that's okay. It, you, once you set up a pattern of them taking you seriously, all of a sudden you can say, you know, you can look at them initially and not respond, silently wait. Then if they keep going, take a break. Okay. Um, you know, maybe it's like, if I have to keep giving you breaks, when you get home, we're going to have a delay before we, we watch such and such. I don't know. How long is the break going to take? That time is going to come off before we do the thing you want. Or we, and if we, if it happens too long, we might have to skip it today. I don't know. That'll depend on you. So you hear the autonomy in that. There's lack of judgment, but there is a firm boundary that's frustrating. them. So um, if you have breaks at home, you can do breaks in the store, number one. Uh, so if you don't have them happening at home, don't try to start them in the store. because That's the hardest place to start them. Let's start them at home. Have Get that seriousness happening where they know mom follows through and she follows through in these predictable steps. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, I can hear people saying, what if I, you know, I don't have, you know, the time to sit and take this break in this store. And my suggestion would be, you know, to finish your shopping, take them out. And I actually have had great success with breaks in the car, which is really interesting because you would think, why would they care? They have to sit in the car anyways, but we'll have, like, I will pull over for half a second and tell them that we're going to sit here until this tantrum stops or the fighting in the car stops. Cause my boys love fighting in the car. It's their favorite pastime. And it's amazing. I pull over silence because they don't, they want to, I don't know, get where I'm going. I don't know why they care so much, but it is a really cool I love using that tool in the car when my kids are fighting. Just pull over. That, yeah, that's and and you know and and somebody's probably listening and thinking, yeah, what if I don't have time to pull over? What if I'm in a hurry? Well, don't do it on the don't start it on the day you're in a hurry. Start it on the day you're not. That's a strategic way to do it. I remember um, I used to um, when I worked at this summer camp that was sort of the all star camp for behavior problem children. One of the things in the beginning of camp is I, I sometimes I would drive a van to the with some other staff to the airport to pick up a bunch of kids. So you got like, you know, 16 um, kids who are sent there for a reason in a van <laughs> and you got to drive, you know, an hour and 45 minutes from the airport out into the mountain camp. Um, and inevitably half an hour in the honeymoon period's over and the noise and chaos ensues. And, uh, and I remember, um, I would just on the highway in New Jersey, I'd pull over, I'd find a, a big flat grassy area and I would just pull over. It was typically a hot June day and I would pull over and I, without saying anything, I, I'd get out of the the van, I'd tell the other staff, oh, you know, we can take a walk for a couple minutes. And we'd walk around for a couple minutes. <laughs> After a couple of minutes, that van starts getting warm and, they, and somebody yells out, hey, why did we stop? <laughs> and you go, oh, you know, I don't like driving when it's noisy. I thought I'd wait. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, the next couple of minutes, there's arguing in the van until they, they settle each other. And they're like, 
okay, we're quiet. Come back in. We, we want to go. It's getting hot. Okay, great. No problem. Get back in the van. Drive. You know, um, so I think, um, so one of these things that came to mind while you were talking is that we tend to think of all of our interactions like did, and this is, this is part of the problem with Instagram. Instagram gives you an impression um, that there's this perfect, right, clever thing to say in every moment. Try this fancy thing to say. You know, this is thing fancy thing to say, number 3,402. It's like, uh, no. It's like it, the reality is that children's behavior is a, a result not of you saying the perfect thing because you'll just chase your tail forever. It's, it's a result of accumulated experiences. It's not saying the perfect thing. I could come to your house and if you have out of control kids, no matter what I said the first time, they wouldn't listen to me either. Right? The reality is that because it's not a magic thing, it's it's do something, do it again, do it again, set a pattern. They know, okay, I take mom seriously. Okay, so that means that the first time that you have a problem, you want to pull over the car, make sure you're not in a hurry and then pull over, then wait. Okay, next time you pull over, it's a little more serious. They have they have some reference. Third time, very serious. Okay. Do it on the way to a birthday party. They're eager to get there, but they're noisy and fighting. Perfect time to pull over. You want absolute quiet on the way to a birthday party or whatever your version of, of respectful ride is, you know. Uh, um, so make a plan. Repeat the pattern. Let them know that they have to take you seriously and, and don't get upset about it because they're making their decisions for very logical reasons based on accumulated experiences. Mm-hmm. And to this point, I think that um, there's a version of breaks that is more like casual and intuitive that always works for me. And that is, you know, especially my little kids who are home all day, their life goes on if I keep it going on. So whether they were making like muffins together or now I'm going to set up so they can paint or we're going to read books or now we're going to go to the store like all of those things I'm leading. So if I stop doing them because they are behaving in a way that isn't conducive to this situation, that is a little natural break. I do this all the time with my kids. They love cooking with me. They're banging stuff around. They're being too crazy. They're fighting over the stool. I just come stop. I just stand there. And within a few seconds, they're like, why is mom not continuing on with our activity and realize, you know, we'll, we'll keep cooking when you're done fighting. And I think that as parents in our generation, we've kind of lost that um, request for respect. And we go to, Hey guys, like, like stop fighting. Like it's okay. Like talking, talking, talking and making it fun for them, distracting them away from their behavior, whatever it is. And really, for me, in those moments when it it feels good and it works and it's genuine, it's like, I'm not going to do this. If you're acting like this while we're doing it. And that is a natural consequence to the situation. Yeah. And I think a lot of it, when you start to, when you start to be comfortable with, um, you know, asserting what you want, it, you, you're going to be a much more happy, playful and authentic parent. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's hard to be that when you're pretending to be calm while you're being disrespected. 
Yes. Um, so, you know, I think what you pointed out, which is that when when you're doing something that they want, that they want you to do with them, like baking, it's a good time for you to go, you know what? Just, uh, I love your first response. Stop. Just stop. Don't do anything for a moment. Let them, because you're letting them self-cue. Okay. You're not giving information. When you give information, it means they don't need to create the habit of mind of pr producing that information, which is easy for them to produce. And you're stealing this sort of autonomous moment of problem solving that should be a natural, healthy, you know, uh, part of their self-esteem that they do. You're stealing that moment. So when you get quiet, you're allowing them to do that moment. You're allowing them to solve the problem. Why is she stopped? Oh, I, you know, uh, we're not supposed to put our, our hands in that. Let me clean my hands. Let me keep going. All right, I'm back. So just that lack of information it is a great first step. Sometimes, you know, it's, if you want it breaks to work well, you do them on early things before it gets too, you know, before it gets too elevated mm -hmm. and you do them without information. Okay. You don't, you don't tell them something three times until you're mad. And then the fourth time you say, take a break. They know that first time, just give them a break. Let it be an easy thing without, before the charge comes in. The other thing is that I think you can also give them a break, which is what you're doing from you. What you did in that moment when you stopped participating in the baking is you basically said the resource of mom facilitating this activity you love has just been paused. <laughs> Figure out how to turn it back on. Mm -hmm. And they do, right? Okay. So it's like sometimes you're, you're playing and they're being disrespectful or they're cheating. You might go, you know what? I got to be honest. I'm not having fun. I'm going to go do something else. We can try this later today. It's no big deal, but I'm just not having fun. <laughs> that's okay. Happen in the real world. Yeah, that's how other children play. Mm -hmm. Which goes to why play deprivation is such a significant problem. Yeah, talk more about that because I am a huge proponent of this like theory with this. And it is extremely hard in how our lives are set up. Our kids... My heart just hurts for the kids. They're sitting in the desks all day. And it's, I think it's hard on them. Yeah. So, so I look at it from, there's, there's, um, there's two sides of this. And I think right now people are talking about one side. And I think the other side is important to talk about. So let me just give you the basic theory, which is that um, evidence shows that children who don't have time to play alone without adult supervision Okay. This means you're not in the room. You're not, you know, they're maybe able to wander and play in their own area with other kids. That's not uh, supervised. That's not managed. So mm -hmm. that unmanaged playtime is essential for all sorts of psychological development in terms of risk taking, in terms of navigating the, uh, the feelings of others and, you know, exercising autonomy, um, feeling less anxiety about uh, decisions and environments. Um, and I'm probably missing a host of other ones, but that, so basically it's unmanaged time when they're self-managing. Uh, if we take that away, they're, they're less healthy, but I would argue that's only half of the problem of play deprivation. The other half is that 
the time when they would have played by themselves is now being absorbed or taken over by time when they're overmanaged. Mm. When we're when we're overmanaging that play, either in our interactions with them, when we move boundaries and we give that lots of information they could figure out for themselves. Those are play, those are moments where there's there would have been a kind of thinking and uh, experience that would have been more akin to to free play and we overmanaged it and did the opposite. So I'm constantly looking at how do we, and I think that part of that creates defiance as well. So that when we over, when we give children answers to things that they don't want to do, and this was my personal experience as a child, because I was constantly impulsively doing things I shouldn't do. So I heard tons of information about how I shouldn't do those things and reminders over and over. And I resented it as do, and I see six-year-olds with the same thing or five-year-olds who are already resenting all that information. And the only action they can take to act on that is to do the opposite, is to defy you because that's the autonomous choice because you've so, stolen the other one. Yeah, the if we can give them the opportunity to make, to self-regulate and make decisions and be autonomous, they won't need to assert it. That's right. And I, you know, I've heard my kids say, like their their frustration that comes out is, like, you're just telling me what to do so much, you know? And it's hard to say, yeah. you're kind of like, because you're not doing it, you know? So there's like this. Like, <laughs> yeah, they're begging you, they're begging you to give them breaks. <laughs> Because breaks are just like, they're just stoplights. And most people, when they do breaks on a regular basis, and the schools that use them, um, they're not giving information. And that made all the difference, actually, in, all, in the studies. And I, I talk about this a lot, but they did a study at the University of California, Santa Barbara, of uh, what happened at elementary school. It used my process of breaks without information, where you remove the judgment and give autonomy. That's the program. And what they found is that there was this huge in, decrease in off-task behavior, like 50% school-wide measurable decrease in off-task behavior. Some classes had 80% decrease. Some classes had 20. We want to know the difference between the 20 and the 80. The difference was who talks about behavior when they give breaks or, or all day long. The ones who talk about it, they have less result because they're doing the work that, that the kids want to do which is solve that problem, which is get in the habit of mind of, of giving, reminding themselves about the boundary. But that only happens when you allow them to experience these small causes and effects that happen throughout the day without coaching them through it or managing that problem and letting them just move and solve and feel that autonomous joy of their own power. Yes. Well, that is so good. I think that's going to help so many people. Um, I'm trying to decide. I think I'm going to, ask you one last question just because we're coming up on time. And I think, um, cause this is one that a lot of people come to, um, oh, these two are both good. Maybe we'll sneak them both in. So, all right, we'll do, I'll try and go fast. Huh? We'll do quick. Okay. So this one, and I think I see this in, so let's say seven, six, seven year olds and up it's the moaning and arguing back and saying why, when told to do something. So, Get ready for soccer. Uh, I don't want to. Why do I always have to go to soccer? Like that's the 
that's the vibe. So what's your response to those situations? First of all, stop responding. I mean, let's start, let's just start by that short circuits. There's a system and there's a pattern. And so, and again, this is not going to work the first time you do it, but you're setting a pattern that they'll adapt to so that it will work. So the first time you they're, they're whining, maybe, you know, you look at them, you shrug your shoulders, you don't say anything. You walk away. They come after you. Nah, it's like, you know, what? okay, whatever. We, we leave in 10 minutes. Don't address, don't engage. And then they keep coming at you, okay? You can, you could go to a break right there, take a break, let them self-cue, repeat that process. Or you could say, look, it's not really up for discussion. Um, every minute that we're late, uh, we're going to take three minutes off of the iPad time or the Minecraft time or the TV time or the story time or whatever it's going to be. It's like we leave in 10 minutes. You're ready or not ready. but So now you lay out something simple, let them navigate it, follow through. Okay. If you follow that pattern, a week later, when you get quiet and you look at them and you don't say anything and maybe shrug your shoulders, they go, ah because they know what's coming next and they go and they self-cue and they deal with it. But they can't get a result from whining and badgering you. If they're going to get a result, they're going to continue doing it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I like that. Uh, the taking, you know, like, because people will say, well, then it ends up being my problem because then my kid's late. And I think there's systemic, you know, it used to be when you showed up for sports, if you were late, it's like run 10 laps, you know, but we don't, do that kind of stuff to kids anymore. They don't have those consequences as much. So right. And when you get there, don't, I would say, first of all, two parts of that. One is this isn't an all or nothing. I didn't say, look, if we're late, you don't get blank, blank, blank. Yeah. I said for every minute you're late, whatever many minutes come off of such and such. I'm not going to go 10 minutes. I'm going to go three or four, something minor. So they feel like, okay, I'm making a choice here. I shape this consequence. I have power. I like those kind of consequences because I can talk to them like the protagonists I want them to be. Okay. Mm -hmm. right, number one. Number two is when you get there, don't apologize to the coach or the teacher that they're late. Like, and look at them and go, you, you explain it. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, they, they, they were capable of being here. I mean, whatever consequence you have at school or whatever you want to talk to them, talk to them, but you, you need to talk to your teacher or you need to talk to your coach. I can't solve that problem for you. Yeah. Yeah. Figure it out with them. Yeah. Know? Oh, I don't want to. There you are. Well, I'll let you figure that out. I'm sorry. Yeah. I think the if if we can choose this method for our kids, like I think we're gonna see this like discrepancy in kids who can handle their own lives and kids who really can't. And right. I think you know, the way I was raised, I would say also false, but more kids were on this side where they were facing their own consequences, they were solving their own problems and they became more autonomous. And it kind of makes me nervous to swing the other direction, honestly. But, yeah. And I think, and I'm trying to get out of the swing, right? Because I but, think that this, the, the, the first part of the swing, children were negated. The other part, they're recognized, but not responsible. The first one, they're responsible, but not respected. The second one, they're, you know, they're respected, but not responsible. Though, though, that's a, that's a paradigm I don't I don't believe in. Mm -hmm. I believe that those things 
you have to transcend that to another place. And that actually people who are both responsible, um, that's the word I just said, uh, and respected simultaneously, that's what's happy. That's happiness. It's not a compromise between two things that you only get half of this and half of that. Full recognition, full respect, full joy only comes with full responsibility. A connected person is someone who has interest in the people around them, who are engaged in their lives, who have a broader purpose. This is a greater child. This is the one we want to raise. The lesser child is the one who's just concerned with how they feel. Yeah. That's not a happy life. Yep. Yeah, I love that. I think that after reading um, this last question, we have kind of, we've touched on most of this. It's a question of getting out the door, um, giving her child ample time. She knows her, her routine and what's expected. I'm gently reminded her, but I'm getting frustrated because she fights me. Um, I think I know what you would say, but give us a little advice. She's four years old and they're trying to get out the door to preschool twice a week. Yeah. So if they're like most families, there's something fun that happens early in the morning. And the simple habit first is that nothing fun happens until you're dressed. Yeah. Nothing, nothing else happens. No, no, there's no, maybe you can sit and wait quietly and, uh, but nothing fun happens until this is finished. Repeat, repeat, repeat. I think just knowing that, okay, first thing I, I wake up, I do this. And it's it's boring first, exciting second. Boring first, exciting second. Just the simple pattern of her getting used to that happening. Like reading doesn't happen until you're laying down. And I'll wait until you're laying down. I'm not going to read to you while you're sitting up because I want you to be ready for, for sleep. Whatever that is, create your pattern. So now it's you're out of bed. Um, you know, maybe she, she wants to eat first. Go, I would love to feed you, but first you have to be dressed. Maybe she wants to play. I would love to let you play, but first you have to be dressed. You have to have your coat by here, you know, your, your shoes on, whatever it is, whatever the things you struggle with, let's do that first. I don't see the time comes off something later working with a four-year-old. It has to be a habit of just this before that, this before that, this before that. Okay. Um, yeah, I like that. Um, I, I didn't think about that, but I think that eating breakfast and, or, you know, my little ones like to, they're always, I don't have any time. I want to play before I go to school. And what you're saying is, you know, for a lot of kids, both eating and just being able to be free before they leave is a positive thing, a fun thing that they want to do in the morning. Yeah. And setting up that, you know, again, it might be a few days of being right there, like making them stop, do the boring things, stop, do the boring things. You know, she's four, but establishing those patterns will prevent the fight in the end. And I think that's- Yeah, if you've got five things to do, put them in the order of most boring, a little less boring, kind of interesting, very interesting, super interesting, right? First, boring, finish, move forward, you know, and get to where you want. Repeat that pattern. Be empathetic about it, but don't, you know, um, but allow them to move through that and like uh, get reciprocity. You can help them, you know, to the extent you think they need, mm -hmm. but allow that, allow them to learn that pattern and experience that, that morning. It's an experience. 
It's an experience. It's not a cognitive problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You can explain it over and over again, and she probably knows that already. And that's not going to change the behavior. Mm-hmm. They have to have a different experience repeated. Mm-hmm. Oh, so good. Well, Joe, as usual, so great. And um, I'm sure we'll just have more questions after this episode. So <laughs> thank yeah. you. It's always great to have you on. Ditto. And if people need help, they can go to raisinglions.com. Um, we're, uh, you know, I, I do one-on-one consulting. There's, you can get a, a free discovery call. I do trainings at schools and preschools and um, uh, all sorts of other things. So uh, you can reach out there. We're excited about your new book. We'll have to have you back on when it comes out. Great. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Have a good one. All right, Felicia. Right, Bye-bye. <clears throat> me, 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 me. <laughs> <laughs> <And> brown cows. <laughs>